You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. a story that is going to come out in what used to be Postscripts magazine, which I guess is now Postscripts Anthology, but it's a British publication, so I figured most of you wouldn't have subscriptions to it, Could, so that this would be a safe thing to read. Can you hear me? Okay. So this is, the fishes speak. They're everywhere with their pronouncements these days, the fish. You can't avoid them, though at first you try. A carp in a kosher New York fish market cries out that the apocalypse is nigh. A tuna caught in Kenya displays text from the Koran in the pattern of its glistening scales. God is the greatest of providers, the tuna reads. A butterfly fish floats over to a group of snorkeling tourists in Hawaii. It sidles up and whispers to each in turn that they must follow the eightfold path. The fact that butterfly fish are notorious whisperers lends the story credence. You're suspicious that the fish's messages all have a religious bent. You can't help but feel leery of the fish's motives. You wonder if they will eventually reveal their true intentions or if their real agenda will remain unfathomable. They seem unusually intuitive, these fishes. Either that or well organized to the extreme. How was it that the African tuna could scale right in fine Arabic script? How was it that the Hawaiian butterfly fish spoke pidgin English? How was it that the carp shrieked in perfectly accented Hebrew, Zitziv Shimura and Hasaf Ba, demanding that everyone must be prepared to account for themselves to God? Not for one instant do you believe the carp's subsequent explanation that it was the reincarnated soul of a local Hasidic man who died the year before. Because carp don't grow that quickly. Any one-year-old Hasidic soul-inhabited carp would have been well under the legal catch size. <laughs> You wonder at the gullibility of the men in the fish market. As fish purveyors, they should have known better. You marvel at the carp's cunning and dramatic abilities that it could pull off such powerful suspension of disbelief. Your lover invites you over for dinner. You sit down to chicken kiev beautifully plated on saffron basmati rice with al dente steamed asparagus napped with a pesto and cream sauce. You are grateful that your lover didn't choose to serve grilled salmon, a favorite of both of yours. Or at least it was in the past. Has your lover begun to feel uncomfortable about the fish, too? You haven't been able to bring yourself to raise the topic. Perhaps tonight would be a good time to do so. The absence of grilled salmon would seem the perfect opening. You cut into the crisp, crusted chicken. As the belted garlic butter in its center glides out to anoint the rice, you raise your eyes from your plate and see the crystalline globe on the shelf in the breakfast nook. A pair of eyes stare at you through the globe's glass and directly at you. You'd forgotten that your lover owns a goldfish. And upon later reflection, you will wonder if you had subliminally repressed that fact. The goldfish's eyes are wide and innocent looking, but you are no longer taken in by its appearance and are sure the jewel-like creature is disingenuous in some fashion. You notice that its cherubic mouth is opening and closing, opening and closing, and at that moment, you remember that goldfish are a kind of carp. The satiny, butter-gilded bite of chicken loses its savor and turns into a horrid lump of oily flesh in your mouth as you wait for the goldfish to make a proclamation, to announce a prophecy. It says nothing. At first, you are relieved. 
then you realize its silence may be more ominous than words. <laughs> its silence presses upon you like a threat, and that night you do not speak a fish to your lover. A piranha is netted in the Amazon River near a missionary camp. In Portuguese, it exhorts the fisherman who caught it to suffer the little children to come unto me. You take to averting your eyes when you pass the fish, fish section of your supermarket's butcher shop. If you allow yourself to gaze upon the pale maiden-colored fillets of turbo and sole, would you read messages impressed like brands upon their tender flesh? Perhaps a mandate to repent, to beware the watchtower. You slink along the canned food aisle, terrified the entombed tuna will contrive somehow to clatter on the shelves. Near Canton, China, a school of white cloud mountain minnows rise to the water's surface, and Cantonese sing out in a cappella unison Confucius' eth ethic of reciprocity. What you do not wish for others, do not do, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. If their plea is meant to stop humans from eating fish, the ploy isn't working. The Hasidic carp in New York was killed and processed into gevelta fish. You are haunted with questions. What happened to those who ate the gevelta fish? Did they suffer or enjoy visions? If so, what were the visions? Did the fish flesh poison them? Did an unprocessed bone catch in their throats and strangle them? Did the Kenyans eat the Quranic tuna? The tourists, the butterfly fish? You wonder if you are the only one with these kinds of questions. In the meantime, there is a run on carp at the fish market, in spite of the fact that unless processed into gevelta fish, carp make for a nasty, bony meal. Your lover insists on a night out together. You dine at an uptown Haute Cuisine de Monde restaurant. The waiter recites the specials and recommends the fresh-caught fish of the day. What is it, you ask? Monkfish in Bure Blanc sauce. Monkfish. You reflect that you were, you were raised Catholic, though you lapsed decades ago. It suddenly strikes you that today is Friday. <laughs> you look out of the corner of your eye at your lover. Was their wish to come here a deliberate ploy? No, thank you, you tell the waiter. I'd like the rack of lamb instead. Your lover eschews the fish as well and orders the eggplant parmesan. You feel a moment of profound relief and renewed warmth and affection for your lover. When you leave your lover's apartment the next morning, it is not until you are halfway home on the subway that you realize that you didn't even think once about the goldfish, nor glance in its direction in the breakfast nook. For the next few weeks, you, when you go to the supermarket, you avoid the canned foods aisle and the butcher shop altogether and only shop in the cereal aisle, teas and coffees, liquors, and fresh produce section. Your attempts at avoiding all things fish aren't helping you. Every day, TV and print news sources report more prognosticating cod, flounder, and mackerel. You can tell the journalists are relieved to have an excuse to talk of something, anything besides wars, murders, earthquakes, and hurricanes. In your office, your co-workers gossip incessantly around the burbling water cooler. Though none of them have yet personally borne witness to a prophesizing fish, they all know someone who knows someone who has. You visit your lover one evening to relax. Through the back of your lover's leather upholstered sofa, you feel the goldfish's gaze boring through the couch and you. <laughs> the television program you and your lover intended to watch on the wonders to be found in the Earth's caves has been replaced by a different episode from the same series on the wonders to be found at the bottoms of the Earth's deepest oceans. As the opening credits start to fade into the first scene, you flinch. Sensing your tension, your lover turns under your enfolding arm to look at you with surprise. You are anticipating a host of fishes, mega schools and bait balls, battering your senses for an hour. This turns out not to be the case. 
The bottom of the ocean is a desert, stretching into black twilight under a heavy liquid sky. Miles upon miles of nothing but sand with the occasional denizen wandering about seemingly lost and dazed. Most of the bottom dwellers aren't even fishes. This is the realm of crustaceans and fancy frilly worms. What fishes there are look out of place, defensive, low on self-esteem. <laughs> Everything is small and compressed. The narrator oceanographer informs you that none of these creatures can be retrieved from their habitat. That if you tried to raise them to the surface away from the intense g-forces of their environment, they would die instantly. You feel a great sense of relief. At least these are fishes that won't be popping up with admonishments anytime soon. The narrator oceanographer says this is a land of total darkness, lit only by flashes of bio, the flashes of bioluminescence its inhabitants provide, much in the way a moonless night is lit only by stars and meteor showers. He turns off his bathscape lights to demonstrate. He is right. Your lover sighs with the serenity of the black velvet screen embroidered with flashing neon squiggles. You, however, freeze. The after-image doodles flash on the backs of your retinas as calligraphic fragments. You strain, but you cannot make out their meaning. The narrator oceanographer turns the bathscape spotlight back on, its brutal flat glare revealing the ocean floor once again. You think about that for a moment. Here are creatures that for millions of years have never seen any illumination brighter than a very dim lav lava lamp. The bath escape with its strobes, it must be as though the sun had decided to saunter on down and impose itself upon them. The bath escape's cameras swing and focus on a fish. It looks rather like a flattened clown face. Its fins resemble cartoonish pseudopods rather than fins. It doesn't swim. Instead, it hops on its fin feet sideways across the sand away from the horrible spotlight. The fish has very human-looking eyes and the expression on its face slash body that is both anxious and offended. You feel great sympathy for this fish. You know, you would, feel and you would look and feel the same way if the sun came barging in on you uninvited. For a long moment, you hate the narrator oceanographer. The television show is an epiphany. Realizing that denial has not served you well, you decide to face your fears. Knowledge is power. You make an abrupt strategic turn away from avoidance and embark on an intense research of all things fish. You learn that in the ocean, fishes possess a talent for immortality. Because of the fierce competition for survival and attrition rates from disease and parasites, they never evolved aging me mechanisms. Thinking back to the monkfish in the restaurant, you wonder if it was calling you to partake of its latent immortality <coughs> in the way that when you were younger and ate the wafer during communion, you partook of Christ's divinity. You experience a stab of fear to think you may have denied the sacred, may have turned your back on a chance to live forever, and you suffer guilt that the monkfish's sacrifice had been for naught. Your lover phones, leaving a message to set up another Friday night dinner date. Friday traditional fish-eating night. You erase the message and let all subsequent calls from your lover, lover go to voicemail, which you then erase as well. As you continue with your inquiries into the subject of fishes, you learn that some fish are so transparent that their bodies act as suits of invisibility. You shiver to think of divinations issuing from seemingly empty waters. You learn that though some fish bear their young live, most lay eggs, hundreds of eggs at a time. Could it be that the fish are playing the odds? With such numbers at their disposal, are they spouting a myriad communiques in a myriad tongues, gambling on striking the mark with the right language and the correct religion in the right place at least a fraction of the time? You imagine vast numbers of messages going astray. 
Akkad futilely splouting Nordic prophecies from ancient Icelandic sagas in Japanese waters. <laughs> a sardine off the island of Corsica, Corsica exhorting in Hindi to bow to the will of Shiva. Wealthy businessmen from Mexico City on a fishing expedition in the Sea of Cortez reel in a swordfish. The swordfish wraps out a rhythm with its bill against the sides of the ship's catch hold. One of the businessmen recognizes the configuration of taps as Morse code. <laughs> the swordfish is spelling out in Spanish over and over again, Madre Maria, Madre de Dios, Mother Mary, the mother of God, extends her blessing to gather in all of Christ's children. All those present on the boat flip out their cell phones and snapshot the incident, verifying it. They immediately post it to YouTube. <laughs> you admit a grudging admiration. You can't find any fault with the event. The fish are learning as they go, plugging holes in their presentations. You are sure there will be no more near mistakes such as the one the Hasidic carp made. Convocations of elders, scholars, and experts hastily gather all over the world. Ecologists and fishermen provide advice, often contradicting each other. Religious figures attend by the score. Each claims to receive consecrated Piscean communications that they, and only they, are in possession of the true message. In addition to the major faiths, the Mormons, Scientologists, Fortians, and Rastafarians weigh in. Archaeologists and linguists produced evidence to prove that some of the fish, seemingly uttering gibberish, are in fact speaking Aramaic and ancient Sumerian. <laughs> The few remaining animist religions in existence send their shamans to claim primacy over everybody else. We are the fish and always have been, they declare. News sources at first provide live coverage of these summits, so intense is the interest in the fish's prophecies. TV News Digest's ratings soar briefly, briefly, but the conferences soon devolve into fist fights and threats of religious strife between the participants. The various governments install a blackout on live feed. After that, newspapers and the web are the best source of reportage. For the first time in their career, istiologists enjoy a measure of fame. <laughs> they are besieged with requests for interviews. In spite of protests by PETA and Greenpeace, people everywhere are eating more fish. <laughs> the parking lot of the Red Lobster <coughs> restaurant near your apartment is now always filled. You no longer have to avoid the fish section of the supermarket. The heap beds of shaved ice lie bereft coldly naked. You guess that many of your fellow humans hope that their fish sticks and fish and chips will confer rapture or satori or at least some sort of paranormal rush. You think of your lover's goldfish and wonder if the goldfish has spoken to your lover. You phone and phone, but now your lover will not return your messages. Through Netflix, you or Netflix, you order old Jacques Cousteau documentaries. <laughs> you strain your ears trying to hear any hint of earlier portents and you hear nothing. But then, in one film shot in the waters of the Caribbean, you notice that after a, s a school of surgeon fish swim away from Cousteau and his underwater cameras, they leave an unusual pattern in the sand in their wake. Are those letters? Sentences? Is that French? <laughs> At night, you cannot escape the fish. You dream of a vacation you took with your lover the previous fall to New Mexico's sere ochre rose and deep rust landscape. On the trip, as you neared Albuquerque in your rental car, the countryside suddenly shadowed over before you, the bright colors of the desert, sculptural rocks dimmed in a wash of cool violets. You and your lover gasped. Thousands upon thousands of birds were flying overhead, heading south. But in your dream, instead of migrating flocks, wafting schools of fish gather in the autumnal skies. Manta rays float on the breeze. Sailfish soar like condors. 
herring flutter, stoop, and dive. You wake the next morning and turn on the news. Off the coast of Ireland, a fishing trawler witnesses a massing, a massing of sculpin. The usual bottom-feeding bottom fish crowd the surface fin to fin. Then as one, they turn on their sides. Their gleaming spotted flanks pointillistically illustrate the first, book of the book, first page of the Book of Kells. They hold the pose a good five minutes, and when they at last plunge away, they release a froth of bubbles that the fishermen swear break out into the air as the Gaelic chant, Gabe and Multibride. The naval fleets of all coastal nations are put on the alert. You turn the focus of your researches on the relationship between fish and religion. You ponder the serendipitous convenience of Christ's title in Greek, forming an acronym that spells out Isthmus, fish, and the coincidence that of the two foods Jesus chose to multiply for the masses, fish was one of them. You wonder if this means that the fish, now so depleted, will miraculously multiply once again. You remember from your catechism days that when none would listen to St. Anthony's sermons, he went to the harbor and preached to the fishes who rose and danced upon the surface of the waters on their tails to listen to him. You research all the other religions and indeed find fishes just as interwoven into their faiths as well. In your city, people gather in processions and march to the shore with their arms filled with home aquariums and fish bowls to release their fish into the sea. They wade in to release their pets, and then they continue marching into the waters after them. In spite of reporters querying them on their way, all they will say is that this is how they interpreted what their fishes told them. So it is unclear whether they are following their fish in order to assure themselves of the fish's post-release safety, or to make amends for humanity's crimes against the fishes by offering themselves up as fish food, or whether because they believe they will be transformed into fishes or merpeople. In spite of everybody's expectations and fears, none of the fish owners' bodies ever resurface. You are horrified more for the fish's sake than the owner's. You know that these tropical creatures can't survive in the cold North Atlantic waters. Suddenly, you remember your lover's goldfish. You worry about it. Your lover's apartment has never been very secure. Someone could break in and eat the goldfish or liberate it. You still have a key. You rush to your lover's apartment, a fifth-story walk-up. You tremble with relief to find the goldfish still there, swimming round and round in its little fishbowl. You hear footsteps on the stairs. You grab up the fishbowl. You tiptoe to the bathroom. As you hear a key turn in the lock, you hunker down in the bathtub and pull the moldy shower curtain closed. The fishbowl fits snugly between your feet. The tops of your thighs lock it in in place as you hover over it, protecting it. Someone enters the apartment. They cry out when they, find the dis when they discover the goldfish gone. It is your lover. Your lover runs out. You hear footsteps clattering down the stairs and your lover shouting. Taking the goldfish with you, you ease your way out of the door. You take off your shoes, and on stocking feet, you climb up one floor. You perch on the landing, clutching the fishbowl, waiting and listening. Eventually, your lover returns. You hear your lover phoning the police, frantic, and then the desperate sounds of your lover searching through the apartment. You feel terrible, but you know you must save the goldfish. You slip past the open door of your lover's apartment when you hear pots and pans being pulled out of the shelves in the kitchen. Five floors down at the bottom, you put your shoes back on, and you walk out the front door with the, with the fish bowl under your arm. You check into a hotel with the goldfish. You don't know what the hotel cleaning staff might do to the goldfish if you left it alone, so you call in sick to work for a week. In the meantime, you phone a lock company to have the locks changed on your apartment. The lock company does so and reports that it found somebody hiding and lying in wait for you, your lover. 
You're told the locksmith called the police who took your lover away for questioning. A week later, you are watching a news feed covering the continuing lemming march of people and their fishes to the sea. The camera focuses in on individuals here and there. You sit up in shock when you see your lover badgering a family of four, pushing along a large rectangular aquarium filled with fish, which is balanced precariously on a shopping cart. Your lover is clearly pleading to be allowed to help them. The mother of the family bats away at your lover with her hands as the two children, a boy and a girl, clutch the sides of the cart, and the father, stalwart and grim, pushes onward. You feel even worse than the day you stole slash saved the goldfish, but now you know you were right to have taken it. Your lover, who you never once saw cry in all the time you were together, is weeping uncontrollably. The camera pans out. The family and your lover disappear into the undifferentiated foam of the crowd as it flows onwards towards the beach, towards the sea. You turn away from the television, tears streaming down your own cheeks, only to find that you are face to face with the goldfish. The goldfish stares at you. It looks astonished. People throughout the world abandon their homes for pilgrimages to the great national aquariums. Tranquil and enraptured, they sit, packed like sardines, on the floors before the vast tanks. The fishes within the tanks cry out in a dozen different languages. The prophecies hum and reverberate as they pass through the wall-thick glass. You wonder if the fish's divinations are transformed by the process in the way, same way that light is transformed in a cathedral when it passes through the glorious stained glass. <clears throat> And this is apropos for here. On the West Coast, the cities of Seattle, Monterey, San Francisco, and San Diego at first profit handsomely from the influx of visitors desperate to visit their aquariums. But food supplies and housing can't keep up with the ever-increasing demands. Those waiting outside the aquariums, starving and impatient to get in, begin rioting. Stores are looted, hospitals fill past their capacities, and then the cities burn. Police and National Guard units must be brought in from all over the country. All four cities go bankrupt as they try to co cope with the unfortunate aspects of the Hegira. Rioting, the riots and marchings into the seas spread across the country, the world. No one cares. As long as they can hear a fish speak, a fish proclaim, that's all they care about. Finally, it is just you and the goldfish. <laughs> you break into abandoned pet stores to steal fish food. Unable to bear the goldfish's confinement in its small bowl, you transfer it to your bathtub while you bathe with a washcloth from your sink. You sit on the toilet for long hours just watching the goldfish. But still, the goldfish will not speak to you. Its silence now presses upon you not as a threat, but as a condemnation. Its stillness tells you that you, of all the peoples of the earth, will not be spoken to, shall never hear. You give up. You accept that your penance is to keep the goldfish always safe, expecting nothing in return. And you feel a profound relief that it is all over. There's nothing more for you to do but care for the goldfish. As you sit, released and empty, the truth washes over you in an instant, an Occam's razor slicing through you. It didn't matter whether the fish had an agenda or not. It didn't matter what the fishes said. That the fishes spoke at all was the miracle. You understand. You grow light, buoyant. But there's no longer anybody for you to tell this to. There is only the fish. You begin to speak. As words pour from your heart, pour up through your throat, and out from between your lips, the goldfish rises to the surface of the bathtub. Its huge, childlike eyes take you in. Then it breaks to the surface and dances on its tail upon the water, listening to you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.